Someone was saying to me uh, earlier this morning that uh, if we worked it right, we could put the Super Bowl up on those screens <laughs> and just keep the volume down. I could keep preaching and people could... I said, yeah, they don't pay attention anyway, so it, it would be fine. I said, better yet, why don't you just put it up there on the face of the balcony? I'll watch, and then I'll just keep you updated as it goes. How's that? You like that, huh? Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. We're looking at verses 44 to 46 this morning. You know, I think everybody uh, loves a story about buried treasure. There is just something about that that kind of captures the imagination. I was driving home from work a couple of months ago and driving by the park near my house, and and I saw this fellow uh, walking along slowly, and as I got closer, I noticed that he had a metal detector, and he was just working his way through the park, you know, looking for bottle caps. Uh, No, it's probably not what he was looking for, but... But uh, he was working that metal detector. And uh, people have found some amazing things with metal detectors. I don't know if you know that or not. But, but uh, I went on, uh, online to just kind of look at that a little bit and see, you know, do, can you really find a treasure with a metal detector? When I finish uh, sharing a few things with you here, probably half of you are going to go out and, and invest in a metal detector. But you better invest in an airplane ticket at the same time because all the good stuff is, uh, is in England, actually. There have been some amazing treasury finds through metal detectors in England. And, and that's because uh, England has such a long and rich history, of course, uh, of many conquests and kingdoms and, and so forth. But, um, for example, in the year 2010, a fellow by the name of Dave Crisp was out uh, hoping to find a, a Roman coin, just a, a silver coin, Roman coin, and they're scattered throughout Great Britain and he was searching in a farmer's field for, for a considerable amount of time, rather fruitlessly. And then, and then finally, he says, I, I got that funny sound, that funny signal. And, and uh, what it turns out to be is he found the largest coin hoard ever, 52,000 silver, Roman silver coins. I've got a picture here for you just to inspire you about that, all buried in a clay pot. How's that? It was uh, valued at 270,000 pounds, and so um, that's about a half a million dollars. So that's not too bad for an afternoon's work with a metal detector, all right? Well, there was another, another fellow who was in a muddy field called uh, Ringlemere in East Kent, and uh, he heard the telltale beep, and uh, after some digging, he unearthed an exquisite rare gold chalice. It's known as the Ridgemere Cup. And uh, it was also uh, valued, I'm uh, sorry, on the other one. The other one was uh, half a million pounds, so that would be almost a million dollars. This one was the 270,000 pounds. I think I have a picture of it there. Yeah, it's, uh, you can't drink out of it anymore. It looks like, a, looks like a beer can after a frat party. You know, it's just been, you know... Uh, but, uh, but it is actually a very valuable artifact, and uh, it's only the second example of such to come from Britain. And uh, there's, a, there's another one there that you can see what it really looked like, or what the other one looks like, what it originally looked like. And uh, these are 4,000 years old. 
These are 4,000-year-old uh, drinking vessels. So you can get some really uh, some incredible stuff with a metal detector. You also can do quite well at a flea market. And uh, so that will only motivate those of you who like flea markets, right? There's, uh, there's all kinds of stories about people who have discovered uh, treasures at flea markets. And in particular, there, 1989, there was a fellow in Philadelphia who who bought an old painting at a flea market for $4 because he liked the frame. And, uh, and he, when he got home, he, um, he found that uh, there was a little tear in the canvas, and so as he was trying to, to get the canvas out, and you know, because he wanted the frame, it all fell apart in his hands. And what he found out is behind the canvas, inside the frame, was a very old copy of the Declaration of Independence. And uh, it, it turns out, a friend of his encouraged him to have it appraised, and it turns out it's exceedingly rare. And uh, there were uh, only 500 official copies of the Declaration of Independence uh, pr- uh, printed in 1776. There are only 23 of them known to be in existence, only two in private hands. This is the, the second one. And uh, it was auctioned by the auction house of uh, Sotheby's on uh, June 4th, 1991 for $2.42 million. That's a pretty good return on a $4 investment. (laughs) You wouldn't have to do that very often and one could retire, you know what I mean? So so buried treasure, right? It captivates you. It's it's quite a a thing. And, And Jesus uses... The idea of buried treasure of, to uh, illustrate an important truth this morning for us about the kingdom of God, the value of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 44 through 46. Now, a little background will be helpful, I think, to get us thinking the right way as to, as to why Jesus tells these two parables. And you have to just put yourself back into the position of the disciples because these parables were told to the disciples. These were private parables. And these uh, disciples have made significant sacrifice to follow Jesus. They have left behind life as they knew it. There has been a material loss, to be sure, for them to follow Christ. But beyond just the material loss of, you know, leaving the family business or, or whatever it, it particularly was, that there was a, a, an even greater social loss. And that is that they were uh, in the process of becoming excommunicated from the synagogue system of Israel. Now, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. Jewish life revolves around the synagogue. The synagogue were were the local assemblies of the Jewish people. The synagogue system grew up during the Babylonian captivity after the destruction of Solomon's temple. And it kept the nation together during their 70-year exile. And so when they came back into the land, the temple, of course, was begun to be rebuilt under Zerubbabel and later expanded and modified uh, significantly under Herod. And the temple was the focal point of worship. But the focal point of social life was the local synagogue. 
And as the hostility continued to grow between the Pharisees, the local religious leaders that, that uh, dominated the synagogue system, and Jesus, the, those that, that, that uh, threw in with Jesus, those that were going to follow Jesus, particularly as, as the conflict has now erupted between Jesus and the Pharisees, there's going to be a big price to pay. It's going to lead to the excommunication from the synagogue. In fact, in John chapter 9 and in verse 22 with the man born blind that Jesus heals, his parents of the the young man are unwilling to, to stand up to the Jewish authorities. John says his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Christ or the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. He was to be excommunicated from the synagogue. And to be put out of the synagogue was to be cut off from life. It would be a place where your family would go. It would be the place of where you would likely find your spouse. It would be the place where business was transacted. It would be the place where relationships and friendships were built and cultivated. It has a number of similarities, really, to a local Christian church in in those relational senses. And so to be cut off from that, there there was no, you know, we have First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist, you know, you get the deal. There's no first synagogue, second synagogue, third synagogue kind of deal. If you're cut off from the synagogue, you're out. You're outside of the life of the nation of Israel. And, And that is a very, very significant thing. But even and beyond that, with the Sadducees and Jesus' confrontation with them, of course, his public ministry begins with a cleansing of the temple, which puts him on the wrong side of the tracks with the Sadducees who oversee the temple. And it will, his public ministry will end with a second cleansing of the temple, which will seal his death. But, but Jesus is, is persona non grata with the Sadducees as well. And so to follow Jesus means that you are likely to be cut off from the temple. Now, if you're cut off from the temple, you're cut off from God. You're cut off from God, at least within the context of the Jewish nation. So there is a significant price that the followers of Jesus Christ have begun to pay and will ultimately have to pay to follow him as Messiah. And so Jesus, knowing that, speaks these parables to them in order to encourage them and strengthen them in their commitment to him that they might remember the value of the kingdom of God. And so these parables are told, these two here, as I said, in the house. You see in verse 36 there that uh, Jesus left the crowds and went into the house so these parables are told inside the house. That's an important thing to remember. It's important because what it means is they were a private uh, parables given to his disciples. His disciples were already saved. His disciples were already believers. 
And so these parables are not evangelistic parables. These are not parables designed to lead one to faith and following of Messiah. These are parables that are told to those who already believe he is Messiah, but they are for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging and deepening the commitment to him as Messiah. Jesus' point in these parables is not to buy the kingdom, but rather to assure his followers that the purchase they have made in the verbiage of parables is worth it. That it's worth it to follow Christ. And the sacrifice you have made and the sacrifice that they will be called upon to make in the days to come is more than outweighed by the value of what they are to receive. Okay? So that's the, that's the background behind them. So as we take a look at these and, and, uh, and in the face of our own worldly loss, and there is a measure of worldly loss to, to follow Jesus Christ, and it, and it is different for all of us, but in the face of that worldly loss, what we have are two faith-strengthening parables. Two faith-strengthening parables, and they're designed to remind us the value of Messiah's kingdom. So, these parables, two of them, we call it the hidden treasure and the costly pearl or the pearl of great price. Two parables, they communicate the same point. Two different parables communicating the same point. And it is one point. And the point is this, is that the kingdom of God, Messiah's kingdom, is so valuable that it, it is worth any sacrifice one has to make to get it. Anything and everything that you may be called upon to sacrifice in pursuit of the kingdom of God, it's worth it. It's worth it. And so this morning, that's what I hope, is that by the time we're done, we are encouraged that it's worth it to follow Christ. Now, the structure of the parables is very common, and it's simple. It's, a, it's kind of a three-point structure, and here it is. First, they find something of great value. In each of the two parables, there's something found of great value. Secondly, they, they liquidate in order to purchase. So they sell everything they have in order to, to get this which they have found. And then finally, they spend everything in order to acquire it. So it's to discover something of great value, it's to liquidate their assets, and then it's to make one single investment within their entire fortune in order to attain that which they have found. Okay? That's the structure. So let's take a look. These are simple parables, but let's just take a look at them. First one, the parable of the hidden treasure, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Simple, simple story. Now, there's some cultural things going on here we probably ought to talk about. The first is uh, the state of the banking system in the first century. It was unlike a banking system that you and I are familiar with. There were banks in the ancient world. 
They, they uh, performed. There, were, there weren't lots of them, and uh, many of them were associated, interestingly enough, with temples. So people would bring their, their treasure to the temple and offer to the gods. And then out the back door, they would operate a little banking operation where they would lend out money at interest to, uh, to support local enterprise. But these, uh, these banks were not a place where one would put their, their um, money on deposit, nor would it be a place where you could find a safety deposit box in order to store any of your valuables. So we think of banks as, as these secure institutions where one can place things and uh, get them at a later time. In fact, uh, that's why uh, banks uh, traditionally build their buildings to look like fortresses. It's not so much that they're afraid of being broken into. It's to communicate to you and me that this is a safe place to put my stuff. But in the ancient world, that didn't exist. And so what people would do is bury their wealth. They would bury their wealth. Now, not all of it. The typical strategy for a wealthy person was this. It would be to divide one's wealth into three portions. Divide one's wealth into three portions. And they, and they did this as a, as a hedge against political instability. And so what they would do is with the, uh, the first third of their wealth, it would be for them to operate day to day and, and do business. The second third would be converted into precious stones and jewelry. And they would wear it. And so they would wear gold chains, gold bracelets, um, maybe keep a few precious stones in a pouch on their person, uh, rings, all kinds of things. And this was, uh, to use sort of the common language today, this was their bug-out bag. Okay? This was when things go really bad, you can take off at a moment's notice, and you've got, you know, you've got runaway money on your person. And by the way, uh, there's still a bit of that, uh, you know, if you observe those of sort of Middle Eastern descent, often you find uh, significant jewelry. And I think it's part of that ancient tradition of kind of hanging on to part of your wealth, keeping it on your person. You know, don't leave home without it, okay? When the ATM goes down, your gold ring uh, can still um, purchase your safety or your freedom. So they would take a third and convert it into jewelry and carry it about on their person. The final third they would bury. The final third of their wealth they would bury and they'd put it in a safe place. And the reason they did that was because if they had to get out of town, then uh, it would prevent the, the soldiers, this is because usually when there was you know, marauding soldiers and things like that, uh, they wouldn't find it. And then later when, it, when it, the dust settles, they'd come back and dig it up and carry on life as usual. The problem becomes is when you, when you bug out and you never come back, right? Something happens to you and uh, you've hidden this treasure and uh, it's not like you want to tell everybody where you put it, right? That would sort of defeat the purposes. And so, you know, you might entrust it to, to one person or maybe to nobody and uh, then something happens to you. You don't get back in your lifetime for whatever reason. And the treasure then becomes lost to antiquity. And that happened. It happened then. By the way, it still happens. It still happens. 
Furthermore, I think it's just worth noting that uh, something about the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, the geography of the land of Israel. Israel lies as the key transition point on the major trade highway of the ancient world. There were two significant river kingdoms, as it were, and they alternately traded and warred with one another for for millennia. And it was Egypt on the Nile, and it was the various kingdoms of the Tigris-Euphrates river basin. And the only way to get from here to there, you cannot go in a straight line that takes you right across the desert and you just don't make it. So the only way to get there is to go north to follow the river and then down along the Mediterranean coast, which takes you right through the land of Israel. And so Israel is a crossroads of the world. What that means is that Israel has been warred over for millennia. When we were in Israel last fall, for example, and we um, visited uh, Megiddo and uh, the, the, the tell or the dig there at Megiddo, if I remember it correctly now, there are, there are 23 layers of civilization. What that means is that 23 different peoples lived in that particular area throughout thousands of years. So what that means, practically speaking, is when all of the armies coming and going and coming and going and and governments changing and different people on the throne and and so forth, there is tremendous political instability, and so there's a lot of buried treasure. There's a lot of buried treasure. Now, as I said, burying treasure is, um, it's not uncommon. Pirates do it. For the same reason, right? They intend to go back someday and find it. The, uh, the doomsdayers do it. Saw an interesting show on television about doomsdayers. I hope uh, there's no doomsdayers among us here. But they're an interesting uh, group of people. They, uh, they make underground houses in order to hide uh, out and hide their wealth when, uh, when civilization entirely breaks down. And uh, my brother-in-law, at one time years ago, was, uh, was uh, one who hid his treasure. He, uh, there was uh, my sister, when they got engaged, there was a family ring that was used to seal the engagement, and, and it was of a very large-sized diamond, large enough that my sister was afraid that somebody would cut her finger off in order to get it. And uh, so uh, she wouldn't wear it after the wedding, of course, you know. And, uh, and so she wanted to put it in a safety deposit box, but my brother-in-law, he was a thrifty, and, uh, and he didn't want to put it in a safety deposit box, he didn't want to pay the monthly fee. And so he went down in the basement, and he found an old can of rusty nails, and he poured them out on the bench, put the diamond in the bottom, put the nails back on top, and stuck it up on the shelf. And I told him he was absolutely crazy, because if something ever happens... <laughs> People are going to throw away this old can of rusty nails and with it a $10,000 diamond ring. So people do that sort of stuff. And Jesus leverages that reality of human nature for this particular parable. So here it is, right? We have a man. He's unidentified. And he, uh, he finds his treasure in a field. How he finds it, we're not told. 
He stumbles upon it. He stumbles upon it. He might have been passing through the field. Maybe he was working the field. We don't really know. But in any case, he, he, he comes upon this treasure, and, and when he finds it, and he's, and he's not looking for it, he, he stumbles on it. It's an accidental discovery, and, and, and when he finds it, notice what he does. It says from joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he, and he buys the field. But first, he, he covers it up. He covers it up, and, and, uh, because he can't just take it. The law and custom of that day says that basically the treasure underneath the field belongs to whoever owns the field. And he doesn't own the field. So he's got to do something about that. So he covers the treasure back up after this accidental discovery. And then he makes what I'm calling here a willing sacrifice. And that is that he's so overjoyed with what he got, what he has discovered, that he goes and he liquidates. You see, he's, he sells... All that he has. And that's the main point. That's the main point. Is to to receive this treasure that he has stumbled across, he sells everything. Everything that he has, he liquidates it. Because he must have the treasure. And then he makes the full investment, right? He buys the field. This guy is all in. He doesn't, he doesn't liquidate all that he has and, and spend 80%, keep 20 in his pocket. There's no bug-out bag for him. There's no walking-away money for him. Everything he's got, he puts it down here. He invests it. Because he knows that this treasure that he has, that he has stumbled across is more valuable than any other treasure that he has. He has properly assessed its value. Now, this is a parable, right? It's a story designed to illustrate a truth. And there are a number of people uh, that are available to us as illustrations of, of people who have stumbled across the treasure. Certainly within the group of disciples themselves. I think about Matthew, Right? Matthew, the tax gatherer, was not out looking for a treasure. Matthew, the tax gatherer, was sitting in his, in his tax booth there at Capernaum and, and collecting toll and taxes for the Roman government. And Jesus comes along. And Matthew begins to follow him. He stumbled upon the treasure. I think about the woman at the well. Right? The Samaritan woman in John 4. She's going out to to get water, and she meets this guy. And he tells her all about his life, right? And and she comes to believe in him as the Messiah and align herself with him and to follow him, and she she stumbles upon this great treasure. Got the man born blind in John 9. You know, for him, it was just another day of begging. And along comes this man who who spits and makes mud and puts it in his eyes and tells him to go wash, and he comes back seeing, right? Stumbled on this great treasure. Now, it's probably worthwhile to to clarify uh, a point as we have continued to talk about these things. We have said that these parables speak of truth about the kingdom of God and 
not the church, and that they are only by application to the church. And so let me maybe clarify that a little bit because someone has asked me about it. When you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you become a Christian. You become a member of his church. At the same time, you receive a guarantee of your citizenship in the kingdom once it comes. When Messiah returns to earth and establishes his earthly kingdom, you will have entrance into that kingdom. You will be a citizen of that kingdom. Okay? But you're part of the church. There, the kingdom is not now in existence. The kingdom is in abeyance. The kingdom comes when Messiah returns. Okay, Hopefully that clarifies it a little bit for you. So we have the uh, verse 44, the hidden treasure, the man who accidentally discovers it. Jesus gives us another parable here, verse 45 again. Do you see it? Again, a little adverb there again. And uh, what that means is there's another parable. It's linked to the first parable. It, it um, conveys the same message, but just from a slightly different angle. The first parable addresses, we can say it, the non-religious, right? Those who are not searching and seeking. This second parable addresses a slightly different group, that is, those who know what they're looking for. And that is what we call the pearl of great price. And so the same basic structure, it begins with a discovery. In this case, it's not an accidental discovery, it's it's an active discovery, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pearls. They're popular, but not today like they once were in the ancient world. Pearls in the ancient world were fabulously priced. They were, they were the epitome of uh, jewels. They occupy the position much that diamonds do for us today. It was pearls in the ancient world. They could be found essentially in one of two places, either the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean, and uh, they were far beyond the purchasing power of the average person. So the average uh, run-of-the-mill person did not own pearls. Pearls were for the, for the very wealthy. And uh, it's fact, it's said that uh, the wife of Emperor Caligula... Uh, had pearls, and, and they gleamed off her, it says. She had them all over her body. She interlaced them into her hair. She had them on her ears, on her neck, on her fingers. You know, you kind of get the picture, right? also get the, uh, the picture of uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly do- uh, garments but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim of godliness. So Paul there reacting against the, the culture's display of its, of its gaudy wealth through pearls everywhere. As I say, the pearls of that day take the place of the diamonds of today, right? What is a girl's best friend? Come on. Right? Diamonds. That's what I've been told. 
My wife reminds me of that on some regularity. She's not here today, so I can say that, even if it's not true. So, but for them, it's pearls. It's all about pearls. And I notice this, uh, this unnamed fellow here. He's called a merchant. You see it in verse 45? He's a merchant seeking fine pearls. He's a wholesale merchant, actually. That's what the Greek word uh, implies for us, that he's a, a wholesale merchant. That means that, that his business is to travel and import pearls. Okay? He's a wholesale jewelry dealer. That's the opposite of a retailer or a peddler of, of pearls. This guy's an expert. He travels all over the world. He does nothing but buy pearls to later sell on a wholesale basis. And it says here that he is like a merchant. You see it seeking fine pearls. That's an active verb. That means that he is continually seeking fine pearls. So you get, out, get a picture of who this guy is. He is. His life is about finding high-quality jewels. He knows what he's looking for, and he's looking everywhere to find them. Verse 46. And upon finding one pearl of great value. That's interesting. One of great value. The idea behind one is uniqueness. This is a man who knows pearls. This is a man who can evaluate pearls. This is a man whose life is given to to seeking expensive pearls. And this is a man who finds something he has never expected to find. Never expected. I've been all over the world. The idea I've, I've evaluated them. I'm constantly evaluating them, but I come across one now that I've got to have. One that I must have. And so he makes a willing sacrifice. You see it? He went and he sold all that he had and bought it. He sold all that he had. He sold all his other pearls. He liquidated his entire inventory of pearls but but beyond that grammatically when it when it talks about all here it's not just all his pearls it's all of his possessions everything he sold everything he had nothing left he monetized his entire net worth To make an investment. All right? A full investment. He bought it. The end of verse 46. He bought it. He bought what? He bought the one and only pearl. Now you think about that for a moment. He impoverished himself to buy this pearl. I mean, unless he's going to turn around and sell it again, there's nothing left for him. He has has completely liquidated everything and purchased it, or or invested it to purchase this one pearl of such great price. 
He's not going to sell it again. That's, that's contrary to the, the point of the parable here. The idea is that, that he is absolutely all in. It was easy to understand with the guy with the treasure built in the fi- or uh, hidden in the field, right? I mean, he's, he's, he hadn't got that much, and he's going to get so much more. This man already has a lot, and he sells everything he has to purchase the pearl, the kingdom. To get the kingdom, he sells it all. He holds nothing back. Again, I find illustrations of such things, even among the disciples that are hearing this parable for the first time. I think about Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. In John chapter 1, it it reveals that that Andrew was one of the disciples of John the Baptist. He He was following, he was seeking truth. And in particular, he was seeking the kingdom, right? What was John the Baptist's message? Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And and Andrew is a follower. He is seeking the kingdom. And yet, when John the Baptist turns and points to Jesus, Andrew leaves and begins to follow Christ. I think about in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch Right? He's on his way back down after, after going there to Jerusalem. And, and, and he has been to Jerusalem. Why? Well, he's been there seeking. And Philip explains the scriptures to him, Isaiah 53 and others, and he's all in. I think about Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And, and he too is seeking the kingdom of God. Peter comes and explains the way of Jesus and how it provides one's access to the kingdom of God. And he's all in. He's all in. So there are many, many illustrations both in the scriptures and, and here among us, right? We all have our story. Some of us were stumbled across the kingdom. Some of us stumbled across it. I did. I was in college and back in, uh, in New England and fancied myself as an atheist. In fact, I would go out of my way to antagonize those who profess to be Christians. I wasn't looking for the kingdom of God. I fell over it. And I was wondrously saved. And I think that that's probably true for some of you out here as well. But, but for others of you, you perhaps have a little bit different story. Maybe you were seeking truth. Now, I know what Paul says, right? No one seeks after God and all that. That's in a different context. Some of you are seeking. You found it and you, and you liquidated everything else. Pastor Art. So whether we stumble across it or whether we find it as a result of a search, we need to be periodically reminded of the value of what it is we found, don't we? Because it's easy to to lose sight of that. It's easy as life deals its hard blows to forget. We need to be reminded. 
We're told in the Proverbs, in Proverbs 23 and verse 23, to buy truth and do not sell it. It's one of my favorite Proverbs, by the way. Buy truth and do not sell it. What that means is, is to obtain truth at any price. At any price, obtain truth. And resist all temptation to let it go. Buy truth and do not sell it. What is the ultimate reality? What is the ultimate truth? Jesus is coming again to establish his kingdom, is it not? Hang on to that truth. You may be paying a price right now for that truth. I'm not sure the circumstances of all of your lives, but you may be being called upon even now to pay a price, maybe a significant price for hanging on to that truth. It's worth it. Hang on. Or you may be soon called to pay a price. It's worth it. Hang on. Jesus says it's, it's worth liquidating everything and making this singular investment. And it may be this morning that you do not have citizenship in the kingdom of God. It may be that you have yet to to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. You know, God is the loving ruler of the world. And he made the world. And he made us to be rulers of the world under him. But we have all rejected God's rule. We have rebelled against him and and we have tried to run life our own way, right? And we fail to rule ourselves or society or the world. God calls that rebellion. And there's a consequence for rebellion. The consequence is death and judgment. And that sounds harsh. But in his love, God sent his son into the world, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus always lived under God's rule. And then he died in our place to take our punishment, to take our guilt. But it didn't end there, did it? God raised Jesus to life again ruler of the world. Jesus has conquered death. He now gives new life. And he will return to judge and establish his kingdom. And that leaves us with an interesting dilemma. What do we do with that truth? That truth is going to, to cost everything to follow. And is worth everything to follow. Will we continue to run life our own way without him? In rebellion against him and and facing the certainty of death and judgment? 
Or will we submit to his rule? By faith, embrace his death and resurrection and receive forgiveness and citizenship in his kingdom. We have two ways to live, don't we? We have two ways to live. If you've never thought about these things, I encourage you to do so. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through If you have made that investment this morning, you have made the most valuable investment one could make. If you have yet to do so, then I urge you, I urge you to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for these simple parables that highlight the value of the kingdom of God and what it means to to have received the Lord Jesus Christ, to be freed from our sin and to know that we will live eternally with you in, in perfect righteousness. That we will not face you as an angry judge But as a loving Father, we will receive your tender mercies. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are in hard places. That just meditating upon the reality of these parables and the, the extreme value of the kingdom of God, that it it would bring comfort and strength to their hearts. And for those of us, Father, who have yet to, to suffer or are not suffering at this, at this exact time, but knowing that in this life, this broken world, that suffering will come, trial and travail will come, may you help us to remember these truths and so that the anchor of our soul would be firm. And Father, although these parables are told to those who have already believed, there is by application, that wonderful invitation to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, for men and women this morning, boys and girls, who have yet to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, even even those who are on the mountain in the 128 retreat, that you would be kind and merciful and gracious to them, that you would help them to understand the truth to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, look at that. I put some, I put some time in the bank this morning. <laughs> I want to thank all those who went before me for doing that. And uh, just let you know, it's there in the bank, and it grows interest <laughs> while it's on deposit. So when I come to use it, it won't be uh, eight minutes anymore. It'll be significantly larger than that. Okay? God bless you. Have a great day.